Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 20th, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today we have the pleasure of having Don C. on the line. Don, a recovered compulsive overeater from White Plain, New York, is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous. He has worked for Overeaters Anonymous on numerous levels, of course, intensively working with other compulsively, compulsive overeaters and carrying the message that there is a solution. Here with us this morning to speak on Freedom Isn't Free is Don C. Welcome to the line, Don. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Don. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Indeed. Thank you. All right. All right. Good. I wasn't sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Don. I'm a compulsive eater and food addict, and uh, glad to have been asked to speak here this morning. I don't remember the last time I went to a meeting in my pajamas, so this is a, a pretty good pretty good deal. Anyway, thank you. Thank you all. Um Next Saturday marks 31 years. Uh, when I was asked to speak speak at this meeting, uh, of course, she didn't have any idea about my anniversary, but next Saturday marks tw- 31 years that I came into the program, January 26, 1982. So I've been here 31 years. I came and I've never left. I'm still here. The miracle happened. Today I'm living life rather than simply enduring life as I was then and holding on to the miracle with uh, a daily routine of actions. As promised, the obsession has been lifted uh, as the big book promises, but it stays lifted, stays arrested for me as long, only as long as I remain in fit spiritual condition. And that's really the, the theme of my qualification this morning is that freedom isn't free. Uh, it's a little bit like going up and down the escalator. I have to keep moving, keep moving, keep growing, keep doing all the things that I need to do, keep living in steps 10, 11, and 12, keep taking all those actions that are specified in 10, 11, and 12, but of course, and that includes practicing all the principles and living according to this design for living that's laid out in the uh, 12-step program. So I'll, I'll talk. I'll finish up this morning. I think talking about some of those principles. Anyway, 31 years ago, this coming Saturday, I remember my first meeting very well. Um, it was in room 101 of the Downtown or Motor Inn in Durham, North Carolina. It was 10 women and me, and I had absolutely no clue what was going on. I was drunk on food, didn't even know it. It was very surreal for me. They were telling stories about their eating, and uh, they were laughing about it, and I didn't get what in the heck was so funny. Why were these women laughing about these stories that they were telling? So they And they talked about this thing called abstinence. Abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. And I really didn't understand it. So after the meeting, I went up to the oldest woman in the room, I was 41, 
And so that tells you how old I am now. 41 plus 31 equals 72. I went up to the oldest woman in the room, maybe 60 or so, and I asked her, what in the world was this abstinence they were talking about? I didn't get what sex had to do with losing weight. And she laughed hysterically. And then I heard for the very first time, but certainly not the last, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. 30 days before I had waddled into that meeting in North Carolina, um, I'd written a note, cleaned up my stuff, left my wallet and keys in the car, parked beside the bridge at 3 a.m. in the morning, walked to the center of a bridge over the Hudson River in New York, and climbed up on the girders. It was the culmination of obsessing for a very long time on the most humane way to check out of life and, believe it or not, leave no mess for my wife and two kids. No messy guns or knives or pills. No body, no mess. I figure I would be washed out to sea and become fish food. It was snowing. It was black. I could see nothing below me except the flicker of a barge coming down the Hudson. I don't know exactly how long I stood there. And I really don't remember coming down. But I did, or I wouldn't be here talking to you guys this morning. I must have gone home and quietly climbed back into bed beside my spouse, who wasn't even aware that I was gone. Um, Two weeks later, uh, actually it was about almost 30 days later, I found my way into that OA room in Durham, North Carolina. My 20s and 30s, had been the nighttime of my life. That January night in 1982 was the beginning of a whole new life. Of course, I had no idea of that at the time. So how did I get to this place of just wanting to check out of life, check out of life, just get out because there was hope. I felt hopeless, trapped, victim, uh, just no point in sticking around. So let me talk a little bit about the childhood. Uh, in one form or another, fear and uh, insecurity dominated my life as a small child, as early as I can remember. Uh, I've since learned that fear, as a lot of stepchildren, the, the big book uh, doesn't talk exactly in these terms, but the, the AA 12 and 12, which is what I had to base, I based my first fourth step on, I'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, basically talks about what what I call the stepchildren of fear, which is controlling, very much like the self-centeredness of the big book, controlling perfectionism, procrastination, false pride, worry, and anxiety. All these are the the children of fear. I had been consumed by all those, dominated by all those things since I was a small child. I was raised by a uh, mentally ill um, mother, Christian fundamentalist, very smothering mother, Um, who had been abused by a gutter-level alcoholic father and raised in abject poverty in Appalachia, which is where I'm from, the coal mining areas of Appalachia. After the third time she had her father arrested, he put a straight razor to her throat and threatening to cut her throat, and, and if she ever did it again, and that's when she ran away from home, 13 years old, ran to the big city to escape him. And... She never returned to her home or to school. 
uh, and she met somebody, uh, and I was the result. My mother's overwhelming fears and insecurities her whole life oozed into me in my childhood, as well as a lot of other dysfunctional and self-destructive thinking. The good news, and I didn't had, had no idea about this until I came to the program, is that fear is, in fact, a learned response. Therefore, it can be unlearned. Like so many of my other flaws, defects, personality problems, traits, self-destructive, toxic thinking, all that stuff is learned, and it can be unlearned, and that's been the major, major thrust of my program, this, this transformation of my thinking. Um big part of my childhood was this, was this fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, and it didn't serve me well. I was convinced already at seven or eight years old that I was doomed to hell because I thought bad things and thinking was as bad as doing. At least that's what I heard. I was uh, dragged to church at least three times a week, and then in the summers, night after night of tent meetings and revivals, I was saved and baptized at age... I don't know, seven, eight, something like that. Had no clue about what all that really meant. As I got a little older, I really began to rebel. And then probably sometime around 12 or so, I just flat out refused to go anymore. My antagonism toward organized religion festered and grew until I finally began calling myself an atheist. To me, organized religion was behind all the world's worst problems from the beginning of time. War after war was fought in the name of my God versus your God, justifying murder and pillage in the name of God. So I didn't want anything to do with that. And I didn't have anything to do with that from my teen years right on up until the time when I uh, came into program, as I said, when I was 41 years old. As a child, I always felt out of step, different, separate, afraid, uh, the world was a pretty hostile and unfriendly place where I had to do a lot of play acting and pretending in order to get along. I grew up in a in a culture in my house that was kind of based on a siege mentality. It was always us versus them. That was the thing that dominated my money, my family. One important example of the uh, self-destructiveness, which today I call toxic ideas from childhood had to do with self-worth. Uh, from my earliest days, I can remember uh, the admonishment from my mom. What will they think? What will they think? What will they think? She said this every time she was trying to teach me how to behave. Her life uh, was, in fact, totally based on getting others to like her, or at the very least, not dislike her. So her feelings of inferiority and less than meant that all the behavior in my house was measured by what we thought others would think, uh, what others would think. So this resulted in me being a, becoming a really consummate actor, which I did for all the rest of my life, acting, 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 acting. I did whatever I thought would get me strokes or approval or at least avoid criticism. I would be whatever I needed to be to not look stupid, to not look bad, to not look less le less than, or to look not look different, especially not different. So we had to pretend to be just like everyone else. Uh, underneath of that whole thing 
was this bad program, this bad core belief that my value was somehow based upon what others thought of me. Or more accurately, I guess, what I think others think of me. And of course, that is total nonsense. My value is based upon what I think of me, not what I think others think of me. So I got to be, I had to be 42 years old before I began to see this flawed thinking. My life was always based upon what I thought other people were thinking. So um, when I came to the program at 41, uh, I was inwardly still that same frightened child, except more so. A lot of years, uh, a lot of pretense, role-playing, stroke-seeking, fear had passed. The result of that, self-hatred. Self-hatred, a feeling of uselessness, adrift, trapped, a victim. That's how you get to suicide. All of this, I felt inwardly, despite being a pretty high-functioning, educated person on the outside. I mostly followed the script of this is what you're supposed to do. That was the basis of my life. This is what you're supposed to do, and that's what I'll do. So lots of play acting, even though it never quite aligned with my inner values. So this inside-outside disparity continued for 40 years until I began to bring the two together through the transformation and rebuilding process of the 12 steps. The, um, the fifth step is all about integrity. And when I talk about integrity, this is what I'm talking about, having the outer and the inner aligned, being who I am. Uh, being uh, Becoming authentic was a really, really big part of my recovery. Eating history, I was not a grossly obese child, though I was always overweight. In high school, I played sports and burned up thousands of calories. Uh, um, I was uh, goody two-shoes with the teachers. I was kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, I guess, in high school. Goody two-shoes with the teachers during the day, and I ran with the hoodlums at night. This was the 50s when I was growing up. It was the era of the motorcycle boots and switchblades and black leather jackets and, and all that kind of stuff. James Dean era. My my compulsive eating really began in earnest for me in my late teens, uh, probably around 19 when life turned hard. My first real love broke my heart, really shattered it so badly that it, it shut me down emotionally for many, many years. But I think that's when the drinking started, start, uh, drinking and eating. And uh, about six months later after that happened, I got married, kind of a rebound marriage. And uh, basically a child marrying a child in retrospect. Uh, I think from a maturity level, I probably was stuck somewhere in my mid-teens. We had a child almost immediately. And I was supposed to be a responsible adult, but I really wasn't equipped for it. I was still basically uh, a teenager. So the eating in earnest began there. I, um, this is, of course, hindsight. I didn't realize what I was doing. But though I had had eaten too much all my all my year earlier years, I was not obese. But now I began to eat, and again, hindsight, I could I can see that I was beginning to use food as a comfort, as an escape, as a taking the edge off. So food began to become a mood stabilizer, a mood altering substance, uh, and it began to get worse and worse. One donut proceeded to three, and eventually to a dozen at a time. A few cookies became the whole package. 
couple of pieces became the whole cake, half a pizza became the whole pizza. Almost continuous eating was the pattern that developed over within a few years. At some point, I don't know, maybe in my early 30s, I crossed some invisible line and I graduated from a plain old emotional eater to the, to the level of addict, as, uh, as explained in the big book. Uh, and uh, I had trouble with the uh, with the addiction part of the program when I first came in, but I was told, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have to be convinced. Just act as if you are. Uh, act as if, in fact, this model applies to you. That, in fact, you've got foods that you are allergic to, or that uh, are just like alcohol to you, that you can't have just one of. And so, eventually, I I began acting as if I was an addict. And uh came to pass that after a while, you know, I said, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, talks like a duck. Must be, must be. So the reason I call myself a compulsive eater and a food addict is to differentiate for me in my own head the emotional eating, which dominated my early life, from the addiction, which uh, which I am now, which I became. Don't know exactly when, but that's the crossing the line. When I, when I crossed that line, there was no longer any choices. Uh, yeah, there was a genetic predisposition in me, probably from the uh, gutter-level grandfather alcoholic and all my family culture, but it really wasn't fulfilled or brought to into fruition until uh, later life. So in a sense, I acquired the addiction. I earned my way into the addiction, just as the big book talks about the different uh, types of alcoholics. And, and some while they have the genetic predisposition, it really doesn't blossom until they abuse and abuse and abuse and abuse, and finally it takes over and they become prisoner. And that's exactly what happened to me. Probably in my earlier life, if I'd had some good counseling, I might have been able to stop, but it didn't happen. And so I was eventually a prisoner of the disease, totally in bondage to it. So that's where I was when I walked into the to the meetings. I was grossly obese, almost 400 pounds, and uh, uh, suicidal, as I said. I, I walked into the meeting 30 days after the standing on that bridge. That, by the way, that bridge, by the way, was not the first time. It was the second time. There had also been an incident with a gun, uh, but no need to go into all that today. But I had been obsessing on death for a long time. So, so I was obese. I was suicidal. And I was an atheist. Other than that, I had everything going for me, as they say. So I only had one direction to go, and that was either up or out. Um, within a couple of years after joining the program, I lost a couple hundred pounds and then gained a few pounds back. And uh, so I've been setting now for 28 and a half years at about the same weight, which is uh, about 185 pounds down. I mean, so my weight is 215, and I've been right around that, give or take a few pounds either way, for about 28 and a half years. Um, I count my abstinence, my actual abstinence, from June of 1984. Uh, my abstinence is three meals a day, nothing in between, no sugar or refined carbs. I weigh and measure uh, more often than not at home, uh, not when, I, when I'm out. All right, so there I was. I came into the rooms, didn't know what was going on, and I argued and I argued and I argued, but I finally surrendered 
to the suggestions of the people. Uh, surrender for me at that stage, well, the way I define it, it's, it's not giving up, it's deciding to cooperate. That's really what I was doing. I was deciding to cooperate with a whole new set of ideas. So clearly my higher power was a new set of ideas. Remember, I'm an atheist now going through the steps. So this new set of ideas became my higher power. Even though I didn't call it that, didn't quite understand it, almost left the program because of all of the God things. But uh, as I began reading the big book, which they thrust into my hand in the AA 12 and 12, I began seeing that, as it says in the 12 and 12, the hoop you have to jump through is a lot wider than you think. So all I had to do was simply say, well, my ideas haven't worked so well, so let's see what these ideas are here. So I began to trust the process and say, okay, I surrender. Tell me what to do. I give up. I give up. My third step was nothing more than uh, surrendering to the program. Uh, it was deciding to sign a contract to go ahead and commit myself to work in the rest of the steps because that's t they told me that was what worked. So, okay. So I got abstinent and uh, was not perfect, as, as I said, but I was abstinent more often than not that I was thrown right into the steps. They threw a, a big book into my hand and said, here are all of the um, answers and the 12 and 12. And uh, I thought, uh, well, being a good student, I consumed the big book and uh, found out, uh, said, well, you know, I got this. This is good. I understand this totally. Uh, the problem is this book is hopelessly out of date and it's sexist and it needs to be rewritten. And, you know, maybe I'm just a guy to rewrite this thing. And so that's when I started hearing things like a closed mouth gathers no foot, take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth, just shut up, follow the directions. I was very fortunate in the beginning to have people, particularly two guys, whose approach to this was very much big book, tough love. And basically said, if you don't want to do this, don't bother us. We have other things to do. We have other people who do want it. So if you want it, fine. Here's what you need to do. And that's what worked for me. I needed to have um, I needed to have that tough love. I had, you know, I, I fancied myself this self-made, self-sufficient guy who had achieved everything and and I had achieved a lot of things in my life materially, but yet wanted to kill myself. So uh, I needed some some humility. I needed some ego reduction to go back to the the original steps of the Oxford group. That's what I really needed was ego reduction. They told me, you know, that uh, to get well, you're going to have to have a bunch of things. You're going to have to have abstinence, uh, abstaining from certain foods and food behaviors, uh, because unless you abstain from these things, you don't have a chance because they are your alcohol. They are uh, the things that set up the craving in you. So I began to study the doctor's opinion and began to learn the nature of the disease. And eventually I began to see that once you truly understand the nature of this addiction, then the, the solution becomes obvious. You have to abstain uh, from these things. There is no other way, just as it says in there. They said, what else does it take to get well? You're going to have to have some hope. And uh, uh, to get that, listen carefully to the people that are around you. 
the people that say it works for them, and that's where I, in fact, got my hope. They said I needed courage to let go of my ideas and try a whole nother set of ideas. And uh, as I said before, surrender for me was give, was not giving up, was deciding to cooperate with these new ideas. Honesty is another thing they said it was going to take to get well. I had to be totally honest with myself. Uh, I had to restructure my priorities, put first things first, also known as the program. Staying abstinent had to be the most important thing in my life because without it, uh, I would never ever get well and I would just go back into the hole from which I which I came. Uh, learning to discriminate was another thing that they had told me I had to do. I had to learn to avoid places, things, and people who were not good for me. Later on in recovery, uh, I, I was able to do some of those things, go any place, as the big book says. But in the early time, in the early year, a couple of years, I had to avoid a lot of things. I had to avoid the place where they sold the donuts and the pizza and all that stuff. I had to drive alternate routes on the way home from meetings to try to stay away from those places um, So to discriminate. And taking action. I was told over and over, this is an action program. We don't think our way into right behavior. We act our way into right behavior. We act our way into right thinking. We, we, it's not the other way around. Uh, of course, with my intellectual bent, all I wanted, I thought, you just had to think, gain insight, and then you were able to change. And of course, that's that's not true. And lastly, as I began to study the big book and work through the steps, it gradually, very gradually, became clear that what they were saying was that I fix almost all my problems by changing myself, not others. And I didn't buy that one at first because I blamed everybody. I was Mr. Victim. It was all their fault. Uh, but I thought, well, I'll go along with these crazy people and I'll trust the process. So that's an important phrase to me, trust the process, trust the process. I always tell people that are that are new, no, no, of course you don't understand it. You don't have to, but just trust the process and keep going. Just do what you're told to do, what other people have found that works for them these steps, these tools, these traditions. Of course, I didn't want to uh, do all this stuff, thought it was crazy, but I didn't have any choice. Uh, turned out that first sponsor of mine, I didn't know much about him in the beginning, but turned out the guy that was giving me all this tough love stuff had 16 years sobriety in, in AA, but he had changed chairs on the Titanic and he'd become addicted to the food. So I chose to play um, the game. I was, uh, one word on the suicide, I was working a program, but for months the suicide idea didn't go away. It wasn't a magical thing. A couple of times I got discouraged and said, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And uh, I didn't think I could change and life wasn't going to change. And I told Charlie, that was a tough sponsor of mine, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I started. And Charlie said, I'm sorry, but suicide is not a viable alternative for today. And I'm, that's a quote. Suicide is not a viable alternative for today. Maybe tomorrow. Let's see what we can do right now for today. We'll take tomorrow when it comes. And uh, somewhere along there, he began to get the idea into my head that suicide is a permanent solution to what could be a temporary problem. And so I said, okay. And, uh, and I kept going. So I want to talk... Uh, 
now about four to seven because the, the program for me was all about change and transformation. As it says on 143, to get well, we have to undergo transformation of thought and attitude. And that's what four, uh, five, six, and seven were. I cleaned up the past in eight and nine, but I want to focus really here on the major, major changes that I had to look at. I uh, my first my first four step was done actually based upon uh, Sister Ignatia's guide out of Akron. She was the nurse at the hospital that worked with Dr. Bob, worked with maybe more than 10,000 alcoholics during the course of her life. And her little guide to the fourth step was very, very heavily religious, as would be expected, Ten Commandments, Seven Deadlies, and all that. But I had that, and then I had the AA 12 and 12, and, of course, the big book. The big book, uh, fourth step, focused... uh, just on resentment and fear and sex. And for some reason, that just wasn't enough for me. I looked at that, and I eventually did the four-column approach there, but I did it last. First thing I did was to uh, dig through Sister Ignatius' guide and then through the 12 and 12, because the AA 12 and 12 mentions a lot of things that the big book doesn't mention. Although if you carefully search the big book, you'll find a lot more stuff in there than just obviously resentment and fear and sex. You know, like on 145, it says our greatest enemies, resentment, jealousy, and the frustration and fear. Uh, So a lot of stuff in there. But some examples of what I really found when I looked at myself, uh, fear, I've already mentioned fear, fear of what might happen, fear of conflict, fear of criticism, fear of looking bad, fear of failure, fear of not good enough, fear of being old, sick, poor, and alone. That that started a little bit later when I got older. As I said before, the good news is that fear is a conditioned response. I learned it, therefore I could unlearn it. Uh, Another one was phoniness, which I've already alluded to, this difference between the inside and the outside. Um, You won't like me if you really know me, so I I need to pretend to be whatever I think will get you to like me, or at least not make you mad at me. Uh, Perfectionism, another derivative of fear, as I mentioned. Setting standards for myself impossible to meet, therefore dooming myself to always feeling less than or a failure. Wanting to have everything all nicely aligned, life in all neat stacks, all projects completed at the end of the day. Everything just right. Of course, translation of everything just right means how I think it should be, right? That's me. So who's the enemy here? Of course, I'm the enemy. Uh, false pride, another derivative of fear. Too proud to show the real me or to open up. Protecting an image I want others to have of me rather than being authentic. Uh, hiding the real me. Controlling thinking and self-centeredness, uh, as the big book talks about. This excessive concern about everything's effect on me, 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 me. Center of the universe uh, thinking. Controlled thinking is you know, as as another derivative of fear. For me, it wasn't so much overt trying to control people. My big problem was I was constructing mental master plans in my head, scenarios in my head all the time of the way things ought to be, should be, of how you should act, how he should act, what they should say, how this should be done, et cetera, et cetera. So constructing all these mental things in my head about the way things should go. And, of course, they never went there because, one, you couldn't read my mind, so you didn't know what the operating instructions were. And, two, even if you could read my mind, you wouldn't do it. 
so uh, again, who is the enemy? I am the enemy. I'm setting myself up to always be frustrated with this controlling and self-centeredness. Anger, resentment, self-pity, blaming everybody else, those, those are the key things that I really had to look at in there. Not taking responsibility for myself. Mr. Victim, Mr. Victim, Mr. Victim, pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. Uh, some of the bad beliefs I've already mentioned, that my worth is dependent upon what others think of me. Uh, that came out of from, from my mother. Uh, another thing that came out of my culture was I need everybody's approval to feel okay. It's total nonsense, not true. Uh, but my nature was if 99 people approve and one doesn't, then I focus on the one, actually. Another bad idea, self-destructive belief, I call them, is uh, self-sufficiency is a virtue. And, of course, not, not true. Uh, asking for help is weakness. That's one I got from my dad. Don't ever ask for help. You're not a man if you do that. Of course, that's nonsense. I'm a prisoner of my past. Another bad belief. I used to whine and whine and whine about this background that I came from and where I came from in Appalachia, in the coal fields, and culturally deprived, and poor me, poor me. Come to find out I am not a prisoner of my past. I can, no matter where I've been or what I've done, I can change. And that's the promise of the program. One last bad idea. Expect the worst from people and never be disappointed. Uh, people are basically bad and will take advantage of me. And that was, again, my mother's negative siege mentality outlook. Um, so I identified in four and five um, the main things that had to be changed and then in six and seven, I began working on those. Uh, for me, steps one, two, and three prepared me to get well. Steps four to nine got me well. And steps 10, 11, and 12 keep me well. So the steps for me in OA, the whole OA program has been, for me, a rebuilding my life program, uh, not a diet program. Uh, the abstinence came, the food came, because food was always a symptom for me. Uh, as it says on page 23 and 64 of the big book, right? If we never take the first bite, then the craving never begins. Therefore, the main problem centers in my mind, not in my body. Uh, so that's that's why abstinence for me today remains as the most and most most important thing uh, in my life. Because if I pick up that first bite, I could be descending back into that pit uh, from which I came. Now, my version of the um, six and seven are a little bit, or go beyond the big book and more into the uh, six and seven of the 12 and 12. I believe that I have a part in these. I believe I just don't turn them over to God and say, God, change me. That has never worked for me. I have to show God that I am uh, willing uh, to change, and I show God that I'm willing to change by acting as if uh, by by trying to live in the solution um, as much as I possibly can. So personality change has been a, a long process for me, and I practice this all the time, all the time, all the time. So and I say the seventh, still, still say the seven-step prayer every day, and what I say is something like this, God... Help me to live in faith and trust today rather than fear and worry. And so I focus on the solution, and I co go and try to practice that behavior to show God that I am, in fact, willing to do this and to live in this way. Um, 
I say, God, help me to live in a state of surrender today rather than trying to control and manage life. Uh, when I add this, as I, I say the prayer, I say, um, now Williams have all of me, et cetera, et cetera. And then I say specifically, God, help me today to live in acceptance of what is rather than anger and resentment, to live in love and tolerance rather than judging and criticizing, to live in a, to try to live in a solution rather than the problem. So for me, my life is a co-creation, a partnership with this power greater than myself, uh, which today I do, I do call God. It's been a very, very long spiritual journey, but I do call it God today. But uh, I have many, many visions of that or many, many explanations or descriptions of that, including the program itself. The collective power of the steps, traditions, tools, fellowship, uh, slogans, all those things together are collectively a power greater than myself. And all those things are the things that keep me absent. I keep going and I keep working the program and trying to live in this design for living. So... The uh, six and seven are very real, and as I said, I had to practice the the new behavior. Uh, you know, you learn to speak by speaking and to study by studying and to run by running and to work by working and to work the program by working the program. Uh, you learn to stop overeating by stopping overeating. Uh, in the same way here, I learned these new behaviors by practicing these new behaviors that showed God that I was, in fact, willing to change. So I will, I will say that eventually something greater than myself changes me. But the whole step seemed to me to be a process for opening me to the healing power of something greater than myself, which is, I today call God. And I, of course, couldn't have had any of that in the beginning as an atheist. But I just kept trusting the process and plowing forward and doing what I was told following the instructions, and to me the big book and 12 and 12 are just a set of instructions. For me, they're very much a textbook. Here's how you do it. Here's what you do. And so I just kept plowing forward. And eventually, eventually I began to change. And the personality um, change, as described in the appendix, but which, by the way, was the only reason I'm still here, if that appendix hadn't been there describing spiritual awakening as a personality change, I don't think I would have been here because of all the God stuff. But I read that and I said, okay, I can, I can get into this personality change business. So I accepted that and, and, I, and I moved forward. I cleaned up my past in 8 and 9. I won't spend much time on that today. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about 10, 11, and 12. Um, to hold on to the gift, I have to work it. I can... I can only keep the disease arrested for me as long as I stay in fit spiritual condition. And, you know, that's not a every, that is not a uh, easy thing. Uh, like there's no surrender. Surrender is an everyday thing. Sometimes surrender is a, an hour by hour thing. But step 10 to me, continuing to look for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear, is a little like weeding the garden. By the way, it says when these occur. It doesn't say if, meaning they will occur. And other things. I always had pride to that as my biggie. Selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear, and pride. So it's like weeding the garden. I might have done a good job the first time through the steps, but weeds have a way of creeping back in among the vegetables and flowers if I don't tend to them continually. So uh, it's a little like taking my spiritual temperature every day. How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? So I do, I do that in the morning, by the way, not in the night. It doesn't work for me at night. Or the 11th, it's just a 
suggest it at, at night to ask these same questions. The eleventh step for me, which I do in the morning, uh, basically is it's a daily renewal, daily renewal of my faith. Uh, I jokingly say, if I don't renew my subscription every morning, it runs out sometime during the day. Uh, basically, my eleventh step is following the instructions on eighty-six to eighty-eight of the big book. I start out my morning every day. Good morning, God. Thank you for the gift of another day. Help me use it wisely. Grant me the discipline to be productive and useful and the power to abstain from toxic food, toxic thinking, and toxic behavior. Then I say the big book um, uh, phrase, direct my thinking, keep it free of self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. And what I'm talking about there for me, the the uh, self-pity you know, means no blaming, no victim, no as-soon-as thinking, no if-only thinking, no someday thinking. I am responsible for my life and how I feel. Uh, dishonesty, uh, no denial of the fatal nature of my disease. You know, I have the disease. I'm addicted to certain foods and eating behaviors. I cannot and never will be able to deal with food the way normal eaters do. So I need a structured plan of eating and a way of thinking and living to keep me in fit spiritual condition. Also, the dishonest thinking uh, for me means uh, watch out for the phoniness or the mask wearing that I used to do. Self-seeking behavior, watch out for the my way, my way. I'm a master manipulator, and it's really easy to fall into a trap of trying to control or manipulate things to get them my way, my way, my way. So I try to stay away from shoulds and oughts, don't impose them on others, don't impose them on myself. Also, I say under the self-seeking, watch out that I don't fall back into uh, an excessive pursuit of approval, uh, like I like I had in all the in my earlier life, always looking for approval, always looking for approval. Watch out, I don't fall back into that. So, I have to base my life and my day every day on uh, on love and service. For me, that's what the program is all about, ultimately, and the purpose of life. When you cut through everything, it's all about love and service and all the various 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 manifestations of those things. So my my theme this morning was freedom isn't free. And that's really what 10, 11, and 12 are about. Keep working it, keep working it, keep working. Like I said, going like going up a down escalator, I have to keep working at it. I do uh, lots of service today uh, at all levels, as, as uh, Leah said in the, in the intro. I've been doing that. I'm retired now, so I'm able to do a lot of service. Even when I was working, I still did lots of service, but now it's almost a full-time job for me. My life now is pretty much based upon how can I be of service. Uh, So I have lots of sponsees and uh, mostly work with people through the steps. That's where the action is. This is a 12-step program. It's a self-help program, of course. It's not for everybody, so not everybody is willing to do it, you know. Willingness and physical recovery, you know, it's to willingness, for example, to accept that the disease is stronger than my willpower. Willingness to put structure into my eating. Willingness to plan my meals and commit them. Willingness to let go of problem foods. Willingness to get absent before everything, etc. Not everybody's willing to do that. To begin again when I make a mistake is something I had to learn. You know, we don't drown by falling into the water, only by staying there. So I learned that failure... Uh, mistakes are just learning experiences. When If I'm working with somebody, if they have a slip, and that happens often with, new, with beginners in the first months, 
they have a slip, it's a learning experience. That's the way we treat it. It's a learning experience. And we do a slip inventory uh, to take a look at what was going on because, you know, the food is the last to go. By the time you pick up the bite, you've already gone through some sort of emotional or spiritual binge. It's always there. Thought always precedes the deed. Willingness and emotional recovery, not everybody's willing to, to give up what compulsive eating is doing for them. I wasn't initially, uh, but eventually. I trusted the process and keep going. Willingness to face life as it is without mood-altering substances. Willing to give up ideas from my childhood that didn't work. Willingness to change my opinions on what is right and wrong, how things should or should not be. So it's a program for me of, as I said, personality change, of transformation. For me, it's really a rebirth program. I look at my 31 years as life part two, a whole new opportunity to live life and understand life and have a good and productive, happy, joyous, and free, to use that phrase out of 133 in the book. Uh, That's what it's about. So I am grateful for the program. It saves my life, continues to save my life every day. Um, And I think I'm going to wrap up here. I was going to talk about practice these principles, but I'm already about 40 minutes, so that's enough for me. But it's it, it, from me. It's it's really important. I look at the principles in lots of different ways to look at the principles. Uh, many different sets of principles, but you know, acceptance, um, service, um, integrity, humility, perseverance, spiritual growth, on and on and on, learning to live life uh, where I can have good relationships, where I can uh, really um, make a contribution. All of that brings peace to me, brings the serenity, and all that means that I'm dealing with life in a way that I don't any longer need to use food or any other kind of mood-altering substance to cope with life. I accept uh, reality as it is. And often when somebody talks about the program for me, I say, well, you know, I was learning to accept reality. Reality is stuff happens, right? Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, and the rain falls on the just, and the sun shines on the unjust, and that's reality. So um, I can't know that all the answers to all these mysteries that we have. We don't can't define these things. But what I do know is I have choices and I have free will. I can choose to embrace the darkness that I can find all around the world if I choose, or I can choose to embrace life and the bright side and see what I can put in rather than what I can take out. So living today for me is about choosing life and choosing to be useful. And I'll wrap it up with that. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Don, thank you. Okay, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so very much for sharing with us today about your personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We we thank you very much for your time and your energy. Mm -hmm. I now okay. open the floor. Thank you. Uh, Don, if you can envision 
about 120 people sitting in a room this morning. Uh, that's what okay. we have. I can, I can deal with that, except I remember I'm in my pajamas Of now. course you are, yes, that. yes, and I'm sure Good. you're looking very fine. So <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you very much. Um, we now open the floor for any questions you might have for Don. Uh, please press star 1 to unmute, and we'll take questions one at a time, of course. Who would like to ask the first question? Hi, my name is Regina. I'd like to ask the first question. Go right ahead. Hi, yes, Regina. I have a, thank you so much for your um, your time and your sharing. I feel like your life before recovery is where I'm at now. I'm trying to. Um, well, I have a question for you as far as you letting go of the the God that you grew up with to the God of your understanding now. How did you do that? I mean, because I'm having problems doing that. I feel guilty about letting go of the God that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And I'm having a hard time um, acting, you know, acting as if the God that I, I know I, I wrote down the God that I would like to have in my life, and I'm having a hard time acting as if that God is truly there as opposed to the God of my understanding is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not so easy. Basically, though, for me, I, I guess I I fired fired that old God. It didn't work for me, and it kept me miserable and said, uh, you know, what 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 kind of... If a God existed, and, of course, I can't prove one way or the other, I have no idea. So I have many, many, many different uh, versions of uh, higher power. Uh, the main thing, as somebody once told me, you know, the main thing to know about God is that I'm not... And I'm not God. So if I understand that and accept that, then accept that there is something else going on around me, and my job is to tune into that. That's what the 11th step is, and all the rest of the steps, I guess, is to uh, <clears throat> tune in and try to connect with this power. So a very long process for me. I didn't have problems letting go of the old. <clears throat> I had problems trying to... I'm sorry. The problem is trying to uh, develop and conceptualize what the heck this higher power was. Now, I will tell you that I wasted about 10 years of my early OA life trying to figure out what higher power and God was until one, I remember one day, sometime a long time ago, a guy said to me, we walked out of a meeting and he had just heard me going on and on and on about this. He said, Don, give it up. Give it up, give it up. You cannot define. It's a mystery. Nobody can prove one way or the other. Nobody can prove how it works or how it doesn't work. Your your efforts to build this beautiful model on the way all things work and God works is nothing more than a, a covert or overt way to try to control. You're still trying that self-centered controlling thing. You're still trying to put it all together so that you can control it and fix it and know how to get what you want from God. You know, if you do this, then God will do that. Well, it's all a mystery. We can't do it. So relax, 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 and just let it go and stop doing it and just start acting as the program suggests that you act, living as the program suggests that you live, and see what happens. Just give it time. So that's a long long response to your question, that basically says, beats me. <laughs> Just keep trusting the process and keep doing it and keep coming back and keep 
keep going, and don't spend a lot of time on trying to figure things out. I, I was actually also once told that my, my, uh, my problem was that I was educated beyond my intelligence, <laughs> and I, my first thought was that was a compliment, and then I began to realize the guy was making fun of me for all this intellectualizing. And, you know, it doesn't need to be there. It just causes me trouble. So I don't know if that helps at all, Regina. It does. I appreciate it. Again, I appreciate you um, okay. spending time this morning. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Regina. Anyone else? This is Janice. Janice, I believe I hear you. Hmm. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, Don. Thank you ever, ever so much for all you shared about yourself. There were so many parts of your story that feeling separate, that feeling different that I could so relate to. So thank you for that. Um, my welcome. question is, um, for those who are early in the program, what steps did you take early on to get and maintain your abstinence? When you first came into the program and you're looking for the way out of the food, um, what did you do? Um, I, I, well, Somebody had some very strong suggestions for me. It was something like a grave sheet for me, uh, but it wasn't quite a grave sheet, but it was basically helped me identify what my trigger foods were, what my problem foods were. I went through an exercise to trying to get honest with myself, but I had help. It took a little while, but, but it, it didn't take me that long. Probably within a couple of months, three months, I have, I was really clear on what my problem foods were. And the fact that if I wanted to um, um, get any kind of recovery, and I, of course, in the early days, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I don't know what you're talking about, recovery. But I knew that I was miserable, and they weren't miserable. And so I decided, well, I'll try to do what these silly people suggest I do. So I had to get on a very structured plan for me. Structure was important. So that was a three meals a day thing for me. I had to I had to just not think about food in between, so I made the plans and so uh got off the sugar and refined carbs and weighed and measured because I was, you know, huge weight, I had to lose weight. And as as we define abstinence, it includes getting to uh a healthy body weight. So it had to be very structured for me and getting very honest. And um it's now 31 years later, and I still eat the same way. No sugar, no refined, three meals a day, and I still weigh and measure a lot of stuff at home. I would say 85% of stuff mm-hmm. at home I still weigh and measure. So structure, structure, structure was everything. Had to get mm-hmm. on it. There was, there was no fooling around. Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Janice, thanks for the question. Next up. Yes, this is Rose. I'd like to ask um, Don a question. Hi, Rose. Hi, Don. Um, I can't truly thank you enough to say how um, how much your um, recovery story means to me personally. Um, like Janice just said, I also um, related very, very strongly to oh, most most of what you shared just now. So thank you so much. My question is about. You mentioned a slip inventory for people you're working with. Um, that a slip is a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd, I'd be very interested 
as to um, if if you could talk more about the slip inventory, tell what it is. Um, I'd I'd really appreciate that. So sure, thanks. that's yeah. It's nothing more than asking the person. Uh, I'm pulling it up on my computer now. Here we go. Uh, food slip inventory. The food is always the last to go, so inventory at first. Write down exactly what happened as if there were a video camera rolling. Uh, in other words, like, I, okay, I committed to one apple, one cup of milk, half a cup of rice, etc. I intended to take a short nap. So it's write down, write down exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then second question, before the food went, there was some emotional or mental problem. So go back several hours or the previous 24 hours at least and come forward. What was going on? What feelings were you experiencing before the slip? Right? What feelings were you... The, the intent here is to help people understand what leads them to this. You know, mm-hmm. Again, the, the food is the last to go. Before the food ever is picked up, you've gone through the mental stuff. So the idea is to identify what's going on. If we can identify that it's about anger or loneliness or or resentment or what or fear, and then that that puts you on the right road to how to learning how to deal with those things. You know, which is four through nine. Uh, I asked the question of what what lies was your disease telling you that you decided to believe? You know, if you look at the addiction cycle as described in the doctor's opinion. You know, we start out with uh, restless, irritable, and discontent. So feelings, feelings. Then comes the, the disease steps in and says eat. And then the obsession comes. And the obsession starts. And the obse- I define obsession by an idea that crowds out all other ideas, right? So that means that you may have made promises to yourself that you wouldn't do this, you wouldn't eat this, or made resolutions, or you may have committed something. And yet, what happens in the obsession is that it begins to crowd out all those ideas, your promises and resolutions that you made to yourself or others. But even the worst thing that it crowds out is the memory of the pain. Mm -hmm. For some of us, this disease causes tremendous pain. And when the obsession starts, the disease begins to tell us these lies that it will be okay. I'll just have one this time. Uh, or, or just, you know, it'll be okay. I, this hasn't been a problem. We convince ourselves of the lie. The disease is telling us the lie that it'll be okay. So that's what this question is. Can you see where the disease was telling you some lie that you decided to believe and decided, well, it'll be okay this time. I'll just have one. And so you went and picked it up. So that's what I mean by the inventory. Take a good look at it to see what has been, what you can learn. And that helps the development of the of the person, obviously. That's what I mean by an inventory, food slip inventory. Don, okay? Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. Yep, thanks. Okay, you're welcome, thank, Rose. Thank you, Rose. Mm-hmm. Don, thank you for the response. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Questions for Don this morning? Yes, this is Liz. Hi, Don. Liz, go ahead. Hi, Don. I'm sorry, who who was it? Elizabeth? Liz. 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 Okay, Liz. Sure. Thank you so much for sharing um, your upbringing. My mother, I found out later when I went through, I'm in another 12-step program and gone through therapists for many years. 
that she was psychotic and the fears and all your feelings and, and how did you finally let go and know that you are good enough to have your own life and who you are? Um, I've been in OA for about a month and a half, can't find, well, I realized today after praying and on my knees and crying that I am resisting any help and feel that I need to go to a therapist specifically for eating disorders because I was starved as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if direction because I feel that resistance but to give yourself permission to you've let go of all those belief systems and to say mm-hmm. that fear can be unlearned and was it through the steps that you did this you know how absolutely absolutely and practice 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 right like anything else you don't you know you, you learn to swim by swimming so you didn't learn to swim when you first got into the pool or into the water so it's practice 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 first comes the awareness of what it is, and then the action to work on changing it. And uh, but first, first is the awareness, and I became aware through working the steps, working the program, studying, studying the books. So it takes time. It takes time. Personality rebuilding is a lifetime process. It does not happen overnight. You do not just simply gain insights into this is bad, and therefore I will drop it. It uh, doesn't quite work that fast. You just have to keep trying, keep trying. Which is why, if you remember, I said I, I say the seven-step prayer every day, and then I get very specific about whatever it is that I need to help ask God to help me with today. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the tenth step uh, is identifying that stuff, identifying what's going on. in my. Uh, I still, by the way, that mother, mm-hmm. this is one of God's little interesting uh, things, uh, that, that mother that, caused me so much grief mm-hmm. uh she's 93 years old and i'm i'm now her caregiver mm. Mm, right <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole nother hour conversation that's difficult so god keeps putting her here for me to learn all these new things so yeah. it is this practice 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 lives for me it's a slow change gradual change keep doing it keep doing it keep going to meetings keep doing all that i can so uh, that's really, it just doesn't come overnight. All right. Thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you, Liz. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Alita. I would a- like to ask you a question. Sure. Hi. Thank you so much for your wonderful share. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, you spoke about um, phoniness and people pleasing and those behaviors, and I'm and then you. How did you act as if to break out of that? That it's almost like a spell that I'm under that I I seem to struggle with, and seem to have been struggling with for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Well, um, as I feel better and better about myself, uh, there is less a need to worry about what other people think. And that's what the steps did for me as I worked through them and began to work the program, got abstinent, uh, began losing lots of weight, uh, began feeling better about myself. And you know, the better I feel about myself, the more, the less I worry about what other people think. And if I'm not so worried about what other people think, then there's no need to be a phony. I know that I am okay. I am okay. I'm not perfect. I am not, but I'm not awful either. I am, I am okay. I work on the things that need to be changed, and I accept the other good parts of me. So my fourth step uh, included assets, too. You know, when you're looking at yourself, an inventory looks at everything on the shelf. 
not just the bad points. So I, I also looked at all the good points that I had, and then my good points got, you know, the more and more and more as I began changing. So again, back to the, for me, it was a trust the process, keep going through, uh, keep looking at these things, keep doing the work, keep helping others, helping others also makes me feel better about myself. And again, to repeat, as as I began to feel okay about me, then I don't need to be a phony. I don't need to be play acting. I don't need to be on stage all the time. I just need to be real. And real feels good. Real feels good. It really does. And that's that's the integrity for me of the of the fifth step. The fifth step was really the beginning for me of this. I um uh, my fifth step was the very first, for at 42 years old was the very very first time that I had ever been 100% honest with another human being about who I really was uh, with all the warts all the everything the first time I was really 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 honest and that was quite an experience for me it was a very very big deal and sometimes I say you know, I was an atheist, and, and sometimes I say this was really the beginning of my spiritual opening because the feeling I had after the fifth step was one of gratitude. Uh, it felt I felt something going on inside of me. And as they say, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels thankful and has no one to thank. That's my that's my favorite atheist joke, right? No one to thank. And that's the way I felt. And uh, this person didn't criticize. This person didn't make fun. This first person didn't run from the room <laughs> saying terrible, terrible, terrible. This person didn't call the law or any of that stuff. This person accepted me, shared some of his own stuff that was just the same as mine. And now it's many, many years later, and I've taken many, 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 many fifth steps fifth steps and I found out that my God we're all the same we all have the same stuff different words here and different words there but we're all just human and it's okay to be who we are work on the stuff that needs changing let go of the stuff we need to let go of and move on it's a one day at a time program and we do the best we can so if that if that helps yes thank you thank you very much you're welcome Thank you, Alita. Hello? Yes, please go ahead. Thank you. Um, You just said thank you so much for your share. Uh, I have a question. You just said something very interesting, and I've never heard it before. You said when you do the fourth step, you also see the good things, and I've never heard that. And can you explain that? A little bit. Well, the book says the big, the big book says, and the twelve and twelve also says we look at the good points and the bad points. So we're not, not just looking at all the bad stuff. Why would I do that? That's an unbalanced, uh, unbalanced look. So I need to to look at all of the uh, all of the uh, good points. You know, I actually give pulling off my shelf here. Uh, some four steps. Uh, I got give uh, a sheet or two to sponsees to help them because so many sponsees come to the program thinking that they are the worst thing, you know, since forever, not realizing that you do have assets, and uh, we all have positive traits. 
So, for example, I have a piece of paper in front of me just to remind people. For example, uh, it's, uh, I say, take a look at this list and on here answer. More often than not, and that's an important phrase because perfectionism is, for many of us, one of our key things. So we think if I'm not perfect, I'm no good. fact is, there is no such thing as perfection in the realm of human behavior. So I say more often than not, I am abstinence rather than out of control. Okay, More often than not, I am accepting of reality rather than defiant. More often than not, I am accepting rather than quarrelsome. And I could go on down the list. More often than not, I am authentic rather than a phony. More often than not, I am cheerful rather than gloomy. More often than not, I am considerate rather than selfish. More often than not, I am genuine rather than a phony. More often than not, I am honest rather than dishonest. You see, when you begin looking at these kinds of things, you realize, well, you know, I'm, I'm not all bad. I'm not defined because I have one or two really big problems, this fear or this anger or this resentment or this blaming. I'm not a bad person totally through and through just because I have these one or two or three things that really need work. So that's what the positive side is all about, a balanced approach. Again, back to the inventory examples that's given. You know, When we inventory something, we, we look at everything on the shelf. What's good? What needs to be thrown out and replaced? So to me, that's important. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I'll. Yeah, I, I have to. I just never saw that before. I'm sorry. Never you just what? I have to look at that. I mean, the inventory was always something. Um, I mean, I did this another twelve-step program, and. Um, Inventory, it was always like it seemed to me looking back. Well, where we where we were to blame. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's part of it. Just looking at we we identify where those things. That's like a fourth column of the of the uh, big book inventory. Where did we have a part in this? Where where did we perhaps do something that this person was just mm-hmm. reacting to, and then we become resentful and we totally forget our part. So that's part of the identification process of what needs to be changed in myself. But that's just the negative stuff. Let's look at the positive, I feel. And I think the, the 12 and 12 alludes to the positives also. It doesn't do any big spiel on them, but someplace in there it talks about we need to look at both sides of the equation. Because okay. I can promise you that you have lots of positives, because we all do. We all do. We have lots of positives and we have lots of negatives. Welcome to humanity. <laughs> that makes us human. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Yes, thank you. Next question, please. Star one to unmute. Hi, it's Nicholas. Susan. Hi, Nicholas. Susan, I heard you. Nicholas, go first, please. Great, thank you. John, first of all, I just wanted to thank you so much. That was such a blessing and so wonderful. And I related to everything. Thank you uh, so much. Um, and I know that you've spoken about this directly and indirectly, but how did you unlearn the negative thinking? You know, is there anything other than yeah? The uh, the key the key word 
Nicholas, for me, has always been displacement or replacement. I can't, uh, I can't just let go of something without replacing it with something. Therefore, I need to focus on what the solution is and, and set about practicing that stuff. Back to the seven-step prayer I was talking about before. I asked God to help me live in the solution rather than the problem. And just as the big book talks about over and over, living in the solution, right? Back on the, um, in the, uh, well, I'm, excuse my quotes, but of course they're from a third edition, right? Uh, on 452, in the doctor's opinion, uh, not the doctor's opinion, uh, but um, the acceptance story, it's called now in the new edition, I guess. For me, it was Dr. Alcoholic and Addict. It talks about when I focus on the good, the good increases when I focus on the bad, the bad increases. So focus on the solution, not the problem. Uh, so that's the key word, displace or replace, and not just let go of. That is that is my sixth and seventh step, by the way. It's all about practicing a new behavior to show God that I'm truly willing to give up the old. So that's, that's, that's awesome. my short answer on that. That's awesome. And one quick thing, do you, do you have any speaker tapes? Um... I there's a lot of them around in various places. I don't collect them myself. I never listen to me. There's a lot of them at various conventions in Region Six birthday party L.A. last year. Uh, I do retreats, and some of those are I do step study retreats. Some of those are recorded, but I I'm not the I just I don't pay any attention to them. <laughs> so I know I don't have anything to suggest to you. They're around Thank places. You so much done. Okay. Thank you, Nicholas, for the question. Of course, this recording will be available, and we'll speak about that later. Susan, you're next, please. Thanks so much, Leah. Yes, good morning, Don, and thank you so much. I got so much out of what you shared. Um, my question is going to be about service, and I just wanted to first speak to the humility within you that you didn't even mention, other than parenthetically, that you're caretaking your mother. God bless. God bless you for that and for the humility to just kind of mentioning it yeah, that was an afterthought. Um, but you also mentioned doing a lot of service in the program, and, mm-hmm. and I, I imagine perhaps in the world. And, you know, we're taught that until we've been through the steps, which I have not yet, um, that we're, you know, we're not, it's not appropriate for us to be sponsoring. That's the way I've been taught. But there's other service we can do. And I wondered, you know, this program is about a personality transformation. And so my question is, was that a huge transformation? Were you always a service-oriented individual? No. Or was that a big transformation? And can you talk about that internal process of were you acting as if and, you know, whatever, that kind of a thing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, I believe that recovery is this long journey from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. I think that's really what it's about. The whole, pro- the whole transformation process, rebuilding process, is a moving away from me, 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 to how can I be of service. And it just kind of happened uh, uh, in my early meetings. Uh, they, I was told to do service, you know, what you could do. In those days, we were cleaning ashtrays and cleaning up coffee and cleaning up the room and all that stuff. And I was told to do that, and I did that. And then, but I started sponsoring after three steps. I had, after I had, uh, you know, some degree of abstinence, I don't know, 90 days, something like that, and three steps, 
uh, had finished the first three steps, we had a step-up ceremony, and I was told, okay, you can now help newcomers. You can now help newcomers with their food and working on the first three steps. And you, by the way, need to be working on your fourth step. So that's where I started sponsoring. And then as I moved through the steps, then I was able to help people up to my level. And that's the way I still treat sponsoring today with my own sponsees. I encourage them to help newcomers after they've been abstinent for 60 or 90 days and have worked the first three steps. So, you know, they're all levels of sponsorship. But the the uh, the transformation into a service attitude was gradual. and But eventually I came to see that service is gratitude in action. And I am very grateful for having had my life saved. And then I also began to eventually see that service really isn't optional, <laughs> that in fact it's the 12th step, and I have to do it. And there's the service of helping to do whatever needs to be at the meeting, and then there's the service of helping one-on-one. Uh, the big book tells me, the program tells me over and over and over, if I want to hold on, I have to pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. I have to pass on the gift in order to hold on to the gift. There's no choice. And I see relapse people all the time uh, where that's ultimately the the problem is that they got theirs and didn't work on passing it on. And when somebody says, my God, why are you still here after 31 years old? 31 years, I say, well, I'm giving back. I'm giving back because I need to give back, but I want to give back. Right, we we go to meetings and go to meetings until we want to go to meetings. They say, and that's what I want to do. I want to do service today, but I don't really have a choice either. I need to do it. I need to do it. So, it was just a gradual moving out from the very beginning. It was the chairs and the coffee, and then it was the helping the people, and then it was positions in the meetings, and then it became intergroup, and then it became region, and then it became world service, and it just went on and on and on. And now I'm involved at all levels. Uh, of various kinds of things, if that helps. Does that help? Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Susan, and Don, of course. Next question. Jody in California. Jody, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don. Wow, what an inspiration you are. You mentioned that you had your heart broken as a teenager, and that you had a rebound marriage. Can yes. You talk a little bit about your marriage and uh, what happened there. Uh, because, well, okay. Um, yes, it was the rebound, and it was not good from the very beginning. Uh, I knew within six months that it was not good. But because of my fears, insecurities and all that stuff, all my defects. I stayed in that bad marriage for 25 years, uh, just out of fear. And I came in the program, and in the program, I saw all the parts of the marriage where I, in fact, had had a significant part in in the problems, right? So it's never one-sided. I blamed her for everything. But, of course, it was not true. I had all my stuff, too. And uh, so I decided I was going to do my best 
to try to put the marriage back together the best I could. So for five years after I um, came in, got some recovery, worked through the steps, for five years, 1982 until 1987, I attempted to do that. And uh, I basically lived in the to the family afterwards chapter, trying to make that happen. Uh, we went to meetings. Uh, used to call them chapter nine, chapter yeah, chapter nine meetings, I guess, of couples. Tried to make it work, but eventually it didn't. And I had done a lot of stuff, and she was not able to forgive. She was not in program, was not willing to be in program, was not willing to really go the length um, to make it work. And so we eventually parted after five years of, I think, an honest effort on my part to try to make it work. So we parted. So that's that's the story. It, it didn't work. And I eventually met, met uh, <clears throat> someone else. And have remarried now. And have been together for many years. And she, she, that one, by the way, happens to be a uh, uh, someone I met in the rooms of OA. Matter of fact, uh, a romantic story. I met this person in an OA meeting in Paris, France. I was speaking there, and she was she lived there. So the rest is history. <laughs> that was in nineteen nineteen uh, late late eighties, so many years ago. Thanks for sharing. Okay. I appreciate it. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Don. Thank Hi, you for sharing. Hi, this is Teresa. Teresa, go ahead. Your turn. Thanks. Good morning, Don. Um, Good morning. I have, a, I have a question for you about uh, weighing and measuring. You said you weigh and measure at home at about 85% mm-hmm. of the time. What mm-hmm. are the situations, in the situations where you do not weigh and measure, how do you guard, how, how do you guard against a slip in those situations, how do you handle those? And then yeah. I guess the second part is, what's your definition of a slip? Thanks. Yeah, well, first of all, I don't. the reason I don't pick up food is because I maintain my fit spiritual condition and live according to the design of the program. The food is a symptom. The food is not the problem. So I'm not on a diet, but, I, but the eating right is a stake in the ground that I, I know that I just have to do. So... Um, if it's things I don't weigh and measure at home, uh, what would that be? Uh, what don't I weigh and measure at home? I weigh and measure. I'm actually looking around. What what don't I weigh and measure? Sometimes in the morning, uh, for my I have uh, um, puff wheat, and the bowl is exactly two cups, so I don't always have to measure that, and I don't always have to measure the one cup of milk because that's just the amount of milk that fits in there, stuff like that. But I always weigh and measure things like if we're having a roast, if we're having a, a steak, or last night we had chicken, and it was, uh, you know, I go for six ounces. That's my that's my portion. So um, we had to cut off enough chicken for six ounces. So, But again, it's the, uh, it's just what I do, and it's, and it's the result of my work on my program, my emotional and spiritual abstinence. It's important to me to understand there's physical abstinence, emotional abstinence, and spiritual. And the physical is a result of having a plan and maintaining the other two. 
I don't know if, if I'm answering exactly what, but my focus is not food. Focus, food is not important. It's just something I do, and it just becomes second nature, and I don't think about it very much. I think about life and dealing with life, and food is just something I do three times a day. I don't know if that helps. It does. Thank you, Don. Okay. Thank you, Teresa. Anyone else with a question this morning for Don, our guest speaker? Good morning. This is Rita T. Hi, Rita. Rita, go ahead. Hi. Thank you so much, uh, Don. Um, I've had some uh, hesitation, reservation with this uh, recovered uh, uh, meeting in as much as I was raised with a uh, mother that was uh, constantly depressed. I am married for 55 years to a uh, dear man uh, with mental illness, and I just feel like um, God is telling me to uh, put this out there so that someone that has some uh, experience in living in this type of atmosphere may call me, and I'm not sure if uh, I'm procrastinating again because I am the perfectionist. Uh, The question is... um, when you first came in, uh, did you, I know now that you say your past is no longer your, your present, and I'm having difficulty living that uh, mental illness 24 hours a day and trying to separate my uh, recovery that because I'm in that atmosphere 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, not quite sure how to answer the angle of the question that you ask, but I think I should point out that uh, I have suffered from depression from a, as, since a child and still do. I, I Depression is still my default setting. Uh, and I have, that is, a, as was Bill, Bill Wilson suffered from depression his entire life. Uh, okay. Well, actually, he, he talks about a little bit later in life he got over it, but I have suffered from that. My father had it. All of my uncles had it. It was a thing in the family. My mother had it. Mm-hmm. And and I have it. That's my default setting. So there are some times when I get up in the morning and I'm in an absolute dark, 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 dark place. But that's what my 11-step work is intended to do is to change all that. I, I've learned that I can change how I feel by changing the sentences going through my head. Important, important, simple, simple. I can change how I feel by changing the sentences going through my head. So I combat depression in a whole number of ways. Uh, I'm pulling out my little 11-step cards here. Yeah, here, here, right in front of me every day, I have a little box that says Don's Depression Antidotes. <laughs> and it's all the things that I often have to do to combat this. So, you know, number one and here for me is exercise. You know, get my body moving, move a muscle, change a thought. Uh, two is get enthusiastic about something, anything. The single best antidote for me is uh, purpose-driven action that I'm enthusiastic about. And that's usually OA service or playing the piano, something like that. That Because that gets me out of myself. 
And that's okay. the nature of my depression. When I when I move out of myself and start thinking about somebody else, it's not it doesn't it, it doesn't get me, you know. So I can change. But it comes back, it comes back. So mm-hmm. doing taking the action is an everyday, 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 everyday thing for me. I have to do it. And I've done this. I take no drugs for any of this. Though in my very, very early days, they wanted me to take drugs. I took drugs for about three months and decided I didn't like that. And eventually, a psychiatrist, and this would be in the first year of the program, he said, you know, you're really, really making remarkable progress in this 12-step program, so why don't you just work on that, and then you come back if you ever have to, to see me. And I've never been back, and that was 30 years ago. Oh, so I I handle the depression like Bill Wilson handled the depression, is using the program to handle it with exercise, with enthusiasm and of course, about uh, that would, the service. I'm sorry other. to interrupt. Uh, that That's would right. be me. I say that would be me using my own program and not trying to fix right. uh, my loved ones yes. that are not. Don't right. see this. And, no, yes, I know what you're saying. I'm not sure how to answer that other than the Al Anon yeah. answer, which is that you have to yeah, I, I am work on yourself. Yes. Okay. Uh, would you okay. be willing to get your phone number down? Sure. Thank you. Uh, actually, better would be my. Do you want to do my email? I don't have electronic mail. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you my phone number. You ready? Yes. Nine one four. Eight two four. Fifteen oh nine. Fifteen or sixteen oh nine. Fifteen. One five oh nine. Okay. Nine one four eight two four fifteen oh nine. Thank you. What time zone? Eastern. Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service. You're welcome, Rita. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. Anyone else? Dana. Dana, go ahead. Your turn. Hi. Thank you, Don. It was amazing. And just if you want to feel comfortable, I'm in my pajamas too. Um, so <laughs> the conference of uh, telephone meeting it was fabulous to hear you. Uh, I appreciate everything. I had a, a question. I, I would love your email um, if you would be willing to give that. I would love to yes, that's um, fine. get yes. get that. Um, all right. It's, uh, if you want it, uh, ready? Uh huh. Uh huh. It's it's fob f o b b one two three four at verizon dot net. Great. FOBB1234 at Verizon.net. Anybody want to guess Great. what the FOBB stands for? Friend of Bill and Bob. Oh, that's oh. great. That's great. Um, my question is, do you have any experience um, with working with younger people in OA? And if you can just share a little bit about that. Uh, not really. Um well, you know, it depends on what you mean by younger. There's younger and there's younger. But nobody, no teen, and even people mm-hmm. in their early 20s, uh, a little bit, but, but not much. Mostly I get, uh, you know, middle-aged and, and higher. Uh, I worked with somebody not too long ago who was just a recent college grad, so mid-20s, that type. But no, you're probably talking about uh, younger people than that. And so, I no, no, I don't really... And we don't okay. we don't have many. That's that's not an OA strength, obviously. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Denise, may I ask a question? Yes, please go ahead. Um, Don, I, I really uh, admire you and appreciate your sharing this morning. 
Um, I'm real curious about uh, your relationship with your first sponsor and any recommendations you might make in selecting a sponsor. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know what the what the literature says, find somebody who has what you want and ask them how they got it and will they help you. And that was really the nature of it. Um, for me, I, I ended up, the first sponsors were, were tough love people and um, and that's what I, what I needed. Uh, there are different kinds of, I see all different kinds of sponsors today. We're doing uh, a lot of sponsor, actually we just, Started a sponsor training in one of the meetings that uh, that I go to monthly sponsor training, helping people with this and understand it, uh, and helping people to get matched up so they can have sponsors and all that. We have I'm in an area fortunate in being in an area where we do have pretty strong, actually I would say very strong OA and a lot of sponsors, but there's never enough. There's never enough sponsors, and the problem is having um, uh, new sponsors are always afraid. You know, there was always the fear, not good enough, perfectionism, and that kind of stuff. So there is a need for this sponsor orientation and sponsor training. Uh, I don't know, other than see somebody, listen to somebody, listen to what uh, uh, they're saying, listen to the the message that they're presenting and the look and all that, you know, and and just say and go ask if you know if they're if they can help you. By the way, don't wait for somebody to say they're available. Find somebody that you're interested in and then go just ask them because lots of people don't always say they're available and they might be available if you ask them. So I always encourage people, go ask, go ask. What's the worst case? The worst case is that maybe they can be a temporary sponsor for you a while. And, of course, temporary sponsors very often evolve into permanent sponsors. It's unfortunate, but sometimes the temporary sponsor category is like a probation thing. Are you truly serious? Are you truly willing to go to any lengths and all that stuff? So the whole sponsor arena is is interesting, but just you need some. You can't do it by yourself. That's the main thing. If we could do it by ourselves, we wouldn't be here. Self-sufficiency sucks. It just doesn't work. So I need to have somebody else's experience. That doesn't mean that they're God. They're not a therapist. They're not a God. They're not a guru. They're somebody that shares their experience uh, with me. If you find somebody that wants to play God, wants to play guru, wants to manage all aspects of your life, run. Run. That's not what you want. That's not recovery. Okay? Okay. Yes, thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for the question. Anyone else this morning? Hi, this is Rose. I, I just wanted to ask a, a quick question. If Don has any um, retreats that are planned in the future here? Um, uh, uh, no. <laughs> it was a very long answer, right? I I uh, I've had to cancel three retreats. I have one scheduled, but it's an intergroup chair retreat, so I've had to cancel others. I am in uh, uh, the midst midst of some serious health problems. I have spinal stenosis and degenerative disc disease, and I've been flat on my back in pain now for several months, mm. and uh, not able to drive, not able to get around. Et cetera, et cetera. So I'm undergoing 
all kinds of shots and epidurals and talking about surgery and all that kind of good stuff. So I normally do about three step-study retreats a year, but I've had to cancel all those. So the answer is no. I have only one thing coming up in Syracuse, which is a one-day retreat on May 18th. But that's it. Other than that, nothing else. That's perfect. I live in New York. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank yeah, you, so Rose. Syracuse and Ithaca Intergroups, I think, are, are sponsoring the inter- oh, retreat yeah. up there. I know what you're talking about. That's super. Thank you, Don. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rose. Perhaps Don will visit us again in the future. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Going once. I just I just want to say uh, thank you, Don, for your for your sharing, uh, your sharing your experience. Um, it it really you really touched me with your answers to the questions. Uh, uh, other uh, I'm sorry, I can't quite quite hear. You're coming uh, in a I bit said, uh, staticky there. Can you hear me now? The line it's, isn't it's, so clear. You're cutting in and out. I'm I'm sorry. Thank you. Anyone else with questions this morning before we wrap this up? Good morning, yes, Margaret. Patricia. Margaret, go ahead. Margaret and then Patricia, please. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Don. Oh, I just, You're welcome. Uh, as, as always, we... We get so much on this line. But I, I, I know you talked about uh, how you uh, deal with your food around the house, but uh, how do you deal with food when you are out? The same way I just don't measure. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I pay attention to, you know, if I go out, uh, um, I eat simple. So I may, you know, if I go to... <sighs> Try to think of a place I go to, but let's say I go to a place I'll have a chicken, a chicken breast, you know, which is normally five, six ounces, something like that, and a baked potato and a vegetable and a salad, and that's it. And so I keep it really, really, really simple. I don't eat any any uh, uh, complex foods, you know, mixtures of stuff like that. I just keep it simple. So I will, if I'm out, I will either have a chicken or a fish or a small steak, and the, with the steaks, I will pay attention to the to the weight. Typically, they've you know they've got them in the six to eight six to eight ounces. I don't get the twenty two ounce things like I used to get. <laughs> so I just pay attention. I eat baked potatoes. That's always a, a staple with me. So that's a, that's a typical eating out: chicken and baked potato, vegetable and salad. More often than not, it's going to be that. So I keep it simple. Keeping this food simple is important to me. I know some people do a lot more complex things with their foods and. But I don't. Even even at home, we're both in program, and we both keep our eating uh, simple, 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 simple. It's better for me. Some people can do a lot more cooking and stuff, but I I like I like to keep it simple. Thank you. That's oh, by the way, by the way, the, the on the on the buffet, I do Chinese sometimes, and at Chinese buffet, that's a that's a there's a place where uh, like a block away. If we're in a big, big, big hurry, or if I'm in a big, big, big hurry, late for a meeting or something like that, 
I may go there. And my rule there is one plate. That's my rule. It's one plate. And, of course, I don't eat the, you know, the sweet stuff, but I eat, I eat the, the other stuff. And so it's a, it's a one-plate rule. It works for me. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Patricia, your turn. Thank you. And, um, I just want to thank you. I can't wait to listen to this again. Um, anyways, I was wondering if you eat any, like, sweeteners. The like only one I use is, yeah, the only one I use is sweet and low. The others don't seem to work for me. They're a little too sweet. Uh, and I know there are some, there there are lots of people that have trouble with the, with any of the artificial sweeteners. Uh, and and I, matter of fact, have sponsored people like that, that, that have trouble with these. So some people can't do any of them. But of, of all the artificial sweeteners, the only one that seems to be okay for me is sweet and low, but I don't sweeten much of anything. So I might use, uh, if I have a cereal in the morning, I mentioned before the puff wheat, I'll put one pack of sweet and low on, and that's it, period. I don't, my coffee is black, everything else, I don't use it at all. It's like I eat a, I eat a uh, wheatless bread, Ezekiel bread, and um uh, uh, as I said, I don't eat flour. So this is a flourless bread, sprouted grain bread, and it's Ezekiel. And a loaf of that lasts about a month for me. So I don't eat much of that. And it's the same way with the sweet and low. Uh, it, it, you know, I might eat one a day. So it's not an issue for me. But it is. it can be an issue for other people. It seems to be the sweetness, the sweetness right. of it that turns us on. And there, there's some of the other things are even sweeter than the sweet and low. So you have to decide whether or not it's a problem for you. But all that, all that art, of, that uh, uh, all that stuff out there, the uh, sugar, sugarless this and sugarless that. No, 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 no. Can't do any of that. If it looks like, tastes like, feels like, I need to stay away from it. So none of the sugar-free ice creams and cakes and cookies and all that stuff. That's just subterfuge. It, it just does the same thing to me. So I stay away from all that stuff. Right. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome, Patricia. Anyone else waiting in line for a question? But this is Gloria in New York. Gloria, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much. I related to so much that you said and enjoyed hearing you say it, and I do hope you feel better soon. Uh, my question was you had mentioned something about eating puffed wheat for breakfast, but then you ate wheatless bread, and I was wondering, is there a, a, a wheat that... Uh, uh, I meant to say flour, flourless bread, not wheat. Okay. No, okay. Wheat, wheat, uh, wheat and grains are not, are, not a, are not a problem. A problem. Thank right. you. I just needed but to... But I stay away from the flour. Okay, thank no. you. I meant to say flourless bread, Ezekiel. Yeah. Anyone else? Any questions regarding the program of recovery? Any steps that were uh, shared about in Dunn's story? Hi, this is Diane. Di- Diane, go ahead. Hi, Diane. Diane, we we must have lost you. Star one to unmute, Diane. (laughs) 
Anyone else while we await Diane? Hi, this is Heather from New Jersey. I'd love to ask a question. Heather, go ahead. Uh, Don, I'd love to hear more. You started to go into it a little bit, but I'd love to hear more about uh, how you, the things you did to help with depression. Um, now, you started to mention some of it, but then uh, you, you yeah. didn't uh, finish it. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's always there, and it but it waxes and wanes. Uh, depends upon circumstances, uh, but I always have to always have to to work at it. So exercise, as I said, is a is a key thing that I know that I have to keep doing. Uh, no complaining. Complaining feeds depression. Try to focus on things outside of myself. I'm looking at my list here. Focus on short-term goals to keep me moving and to incent action. Uh, praying helps me. You know, despair is the absence of faith, it's been said. Uh, doing service for God, trying to bring a joy to someone, uh, making a phone call. Affirmations. Uh, affirmations are very important to me. Remember I said I can, I can change how I feel by... Uh, changing the sentences going through my head. So part of my morning work every day is is affirmations. And depending on where I am, uh, you know, maybe a lot of affirmations, maybe not so many. It depends on on the day. But you know, when when uh, when I say things like today I am I am strong, healthy, loving, and enthusiastic, faithful, serene, and confident. Strong, healthy, loving, and enthusiastic, faithful, serene, and confident. I challenge you to say that five times and not feel something. There's something about saying strong, healthy, loving, and enthusiastic that changes the feeling in my brain. Um, enthusiasm is not my default setting, but I can say that over and over, and and it and it helps. Or I'm I'm pulling out a, a list here. Uh, Attitude adjustment affirmations give you some examples. I do not waste who I am by living in a dream of who I wish I was. Uh, I matter, I count, I make a difference, I deserve to be. I find good in myself and others. I am a good person. I profoundly and deeply accept me. Uh, I find my way today by following my higher power. I do not fear or worry about the future, but I prepare for it. I do my part and let go and let God. I am enough and I have enough to do what God intends me to do. My problem is me, but because I'm a child of God, I have within me everything I need to overcome myself. I leave the judging of others to God and keep my eyes on my own path. I'm not a grumbler. I focus on the good, not the bad. I look for the good, feel for the good, and listen for the good in others. So there's some examples of kind of affirmations that I can use to help pull me out of the pit, to help pull the grayness out of my brain. And then, of course, I say all the, the, the usual prayers, and I went through some of the other stuff. I say, good morning, God, and all that. And all that stuff takes me out of myself. But again, the most important thing on my list, other than the exercise, is to lose myself in something I'm enthusiastic about. To lose myself in something I'm enthusiastic about. And that's today, in today's life, that's almost always something that has to do with OA. I'm doing, I do a tremendous amount of work for OA right now, trying to do a lot of reinventing. I do a lot of writing. Some of the pamphlets on your literature tables have come from my pen. 
So I'm very involved in lots of that stuff. That's what keeps me sane, happy, joyous, and free, and out of the depression. But the depression is there. It comes back. I just work myself out of it, just like exercise. Just practice, practice, practice in the same way that I talked about changing my personality and letting go of defects and replacing them with solutions. So um, it's just work. It's just work. But for me, it beats drugs. I I don't know. I, I definitely got on the Dr. Alcoholic chapter in those very, very early days where he said he had to get rid of all the drugs, all the mood-altering drugs. He couldn't depend upon any of that stuff because he used to not just drink, but then take all the drugs to go to sleep, to wake up, to whatever, whatever. And I just don't want to do that stuff. So I will do go to any lengths that I can to try to help myself on this other stuff. Does that help? I hope. Thank you so him? much. You're yes, welcome. it does. Thank you so okay. much. You're welcome. Uh, Thank hi, you, Heather. Go ahead. Hi this, hi, this is Diane. I'm a grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater and a food addict. Thank you, Don, this morning. Hi, Diane. You're welcome. I, thanks to be able to listen to you again. I was at a retreat that you did about two years ago in Maryland. Uh, hmm. And okay. um, there are things that um, I heard again today and things that I heard that are new and... Um, it was just good to be reminded because I am a compulsive overeater and if I don't follow my food plan, I'm in trouble. Um, and I'm really grateful for what you said about the sugar and the sugar substitutes because um, I can't do either and be abstinent. Um, my question is, I know I have your email somewhere in the dredges of my um my computer, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to share it again. Yeah. It's FOB, F-O-B-B, 1234, at Verizon.net. FOB, F-O-B-B, 1234, at Verizon.net. Okay. I'd like to ask you some questions offline. That's fine. Thank you very much. And thank you, Don, so very much for your time and energy this morning. You're truly an inspiration to all of us on the line, and thank you for carrying such a message of hope. Indeed, it was a strong, healthy, loving, and enthusiastic enthusiastic message for all of us this morning. I'm going to close, thank you, Leah. I'm going to close the meeting now with the way we always close this meeting, and that is from the reading in the big book on page 164. Our big book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. 
We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.